This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Every morning early when Tup and I get up to start our chores, the whole house still quiet and the children asleep, I turn and pull the bed together, tugging at the sheets to make them tight and smooth. They're warm with our heat. I slide my hand across the place my husband slept, drawing the blankets up and closing in the warmth, like a memory of us, until night comes when we will lie down together again. Our room has big windows in the back of the house, looking out on the near pasture and the creek running through it. It's very nice to stand first thing every morning, looking out over the land. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to author Meredith Hall about her debut novel, Beneficence. It tells the story of the Center family living on a farm not far from the coast of Maine following the seasons as they plant their vegetables, milk their cows, share in the daily and often harsh tasks of farm life until they are torn asunder by a horrible tragedy. Then each of them is forced to grapple with the loss of the world as they know it. Many seasons need to pass before any of them can find a way back to being a family. Hi, Meredith. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, Galit. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. So how did you come to write this story? I wrote my first book when I was in my late 50s. It was a memoir. I had taught for many years in an MFA program and got to my own writing later in my life. And when I wrote the book, I I didn't think anybody would ever read it. I thought that I was writing an obscure little book in an obscure corner of the world and it would not be read. And I ended up writing a very intimate memoir. And a lot of people, in fact, did read it. And the book took me out into the world. So I talked about the book a lot with a lot of people. And that meant I also talked a lot about my life. That's the nature of memoir. And uh, when I was ready to start my second book, I thought I'm an essayist, you know, I had always been an essayist, and I made the big decision that I was going to try fiction and went into that 
project with a lot of confidence. I, I taught narrative writing in nonfiction and fiction uh, for many years. And I thought, well, this is, this is just narrative writing. How hard can it be? And it actually turned out to be more of a challenge than I thought. When I landed on my story, um, I recognized it instantly. I had been searching around for the story that I wanted. And um, this came to me from a snippet of a conversation with a neighbor. And I recognized right away uh, that this was territory that I recognized and I wanted to write about it. It was the character, the lead character, Top, uh, was going to be a man who had a wife and children and um, did pretty well in that role until something very challenging came into their, into their family life. And then he behaved very badly. So I went into it believing that I was actually going to write a focus on a bad guy. That was my intention, was to focus on a bad guy. I wanted to understand how this very flawed man could explain his behavior to himself, uh, justify it to himself. And once I started writing the book, it was not Tup who started speaking. It was his wife, Doris. I was surprised that she asserted herself and was the first person to claim the page. I didn't know that anybody besides Tup would speak. And here she was. And within 10 pages, I understood that I had it all wrong. Doris introduced me to a man that she trusted and loved profoundly. Uh, he was absolutely her closest uh, companion and her great love and a very fine father. And I, I knew then that I was going to travel into a very different story than I imagined. Mm. The farm in Maine is almost like another character. We learn about its rooms, the barn, the pastures, the gardens. Did you base it on someplace special in your life? I based it on, I, I have never been on a dairy farm. I don't know anything really about dairy farms, except, you know, I've lived in Maine all my life. Uh, anybody in rural Maine knows farmers and dairy farmers, and we know how the farms work and we're familiar with the animals. But I had never actually worked on a dairy farm or lived on a dairy farm. But the life that I wrote oddly, uh, I can see that this is a strange thing. Really, I wrote the dream life that I might have. This is this is a physically very, very beautiful place. The farm is a thriving farm. It's very productive. Uh, Top and his wife have brought the farm back to great productivity. His family has run this farm for five generations. And when he uh, started, uh, took it over, um, it was not in good shape. And he has brought it back into uh, being a very a, a classically productive main dairy farm. And the, 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 the farm, the barn, the house, the fields, the creek, um, the hillside under the pine trees, uh, these are, it's, it's a life that I feel a great nostalgia for. I have all my adult life, although I've never actually known it. I don't know how to explain it. It's a life that I wish I had had. Hmm. It's a, you talk about it as a dream life, but Doris, the mother is, she loves what she does, but it's not easy. She's working from sunup to sundown. It's the forties. So she's bent over a washboard or canning or sewing, working without end. Can you say more about that? Yes. But the fact is we don't see uh, any, any members of this family complain about that work. They 
they understand their their understanding of what they do every day is that the the farm is um, kind to them. The the farm is highly productive and sustains them if they sustain the farm. If they put in their work, the farm will return that reward. And they feel a sense of um, deep gratitude for this reciprocal relationship. And I don't think that any of them uh, feel they are good humored people. They are, Top and Doris are a very, very good team. They work together. They're a partnership. And their children all work. The three children all have very serious work that they do on the farm. And I, I don't think, I think that because they are a good-natured family and because they recognize, Doris tells us very early in the book, Top and I have enough sense to know that we are, um, we are blessed people. And I think that that's how they move through those days, that this is not, um, this is these obligations are not a burden. Mm-hmm. They're very absorbed with the family. It, it's uh, it's not about community for them. They're not surrounded with friends, although the kids have friends. But it's really just about the family, except that they go to church. They don't talk about it. It's integral, but they they don't talk about it. They just go. Can you speak more about that? Yes, that's a wonderful reading. Gali, I appreciate that. You're absolutely right. These people have, um, they live outside town on a dead end road and um, they're the last farm. And they do go to town and do things. The kids, of course, go to school in town and um, they do their errands. They get their their feed for their animals in town. Uh, But primarily their connection to the town. And it's a very, very small main town, but their connection is through the church. And I think I did model that on my experience of um, church when I was growing up. Everybody in a small New England town, uh, most people went to a church and um, the, the belief in the doctrine of the church really was sort of taken for granted. It was not questioned. It, it was There was not an inquiry about the nature of God and our relationship to God in those small Christian uh, churches. And I think that that's who the centers are. I think they go to church every Sunday. It is their, their it's part of the fabric of their small social world in their town. As the book goes on, when they when they are faced with a great challenge, a great difficulty, they do start, especially Top and uh, their daughter Dodie, really starts questioning um, the nature of God's love. And uh, Dodie is quite defiant, saying, "You know how how could a God allow this kind of harm, this kind of pain and suffering?" And um, I think I think that, and they stop going to church at the same time that they are raising these questions. The church itself is not helpful to them. Later, they do return to church as things as they uh, find some calm inside those questions. Mm-hmm. So it's the forties. Ten-year-old um, Sonny becomes aware of World War II going on because of some of the um, people who have come home. And he understands that something is wrong with those men. But 
why is the war otherwise so distant from the family? Mm. Yes. So Tuck was um, disappointed. He thought that he was going to enlist in World War II. And he was turned down because the government uh, wanted farmers to stay on their land and produce um, food for the country and I, and also for the, for the soldiers. And he was um, told that he needed to stay on the farm and keep doing what he was doing. And I think that there was some, a sense of failure on his part that he had not um, succeeded in enlisting. But uh, there were other farmers in his community who also uh, stayed home and farmed. And I think that coupled with the, the fact that this family lives in such a, at one point, Top calls this home their stronghold. Uh, this is a place outside time and outside community, outside history. And um, they, they are not unaware event, of events off the farm and outside in the larger world. But the farm itself and their family life on the farm are central to them every hour of the day. He says in the beginning, the uh, top, the father, we are safe on this land, in this home. This is a huge part of his self-awareness uh, that the farm is the center of their lives, that they're protected. So can you say something about how his views change over the course of the years? Well, it's interesting because Doris actually, Doris grew up um, in a, a town, a, a town that had stores more than more than uh, Alstead, Maine, where the farm is, and her father ran one of those stores, and um, she had no experience with farming or a rural life. She married Top uh, when she was nineteen. They fell in love, and she. Uh, moved on to the farm with him, and it needed a tremendous amount of work because it had been allowed to deteriorate. She was very happy to make that move and came to feel that that home and that farm were safety, that if there was any harm that might come to them, it would come from outside. She couldn't imagine what the nature of that threat might be, but she was anxious about uh, people, an event, something that might um, that might put them at risk. Top did not feel that. Top grew up in Alstead, Maine. He trusted the this small uh, town. He certainly trusted the farm and the home. His great great grandfather had sat at the same table in the same kitchen. He trusted that. Top carried a very deep worry that there was something inherent in him that was going to cause him to fail his family. And that was his struggle. Uh, as the as the story goes on and uh, this terrible challenge, this terrible event visits them, it comes into their lives and it's catastrophic. Top uh, struggles with this sense of whether... Um, this is something inside him that failed, something he can't name, something he can't put his finger on. Uh, he blames himself for this, for this event, for this failure, and yet he can't quite figure out what the blame is. And he says to the reader again and again and again, and to himself, it's almost a beseeching 
he says, but I am a good man. I am a good man. And he struggles between his sense of himself as that good man and a man that he sees has failed. And he's not the only one who blames himself. Why do three of the characters blame themselves for what happened? Yes, they do. Uh, Doris feels that um, since this threat is outside her, it's outside their home, she stood, should have stood greater vigilance. And she, she feels that for one moment, she failed to pay attention. And that failure of attention cost everything. Um, she is quite specific in her understanding of her failure, unlike Tup. Tup has a harder time naming his failures. Their daughter, Dodie, uh, was only 10 years old when the story opens. And um, we watch her grow up and graduate from high school and get married. And uh, she struggles with a very concrete worry. There's, there's a traumatic moment that she can't quite pull into clear memory. And so her own, her own presence, her own actions in that moment are cloudy to her, and she's never able to sort that out. Can you say something about Beston and how he grapples with what's happening? He's the youngest. He's the youngest, yes, sweet Beston. Um, Beston is a small boy when the story opens, the youngest of the three children. Sonny is 13, Dodie is 10, and Beston is five when the story opens. And Beston is the quiet child. He, um, I made the decision to give one of the children a voice and chose Dodie. And I'm glad that I let her be that, that narrator. She, I think, turned into a very, very interesting narrator. Beston was so small that I made the decision. It was really, it was a, a writer's decision that he was simply too young to uh, have a reader um, find uh, much substance in what he could deliver about the early events in their family. But that left him throughout the book with no voice. Dodie takes over in many ways as his mother when his mother is not able, when their mother is not able to uh, function well in that role. And Dodie steps up and really functions in, in a lot of ways as Beston's mother. And she reports him to us. She, she understands him uh, in a very profound way and is deeply, deeply attached to him and deeply protective of him. And she is the one who sort of delivers Beston to us. She's the truth teller in the family. She's the questioner. She's the one who pushes everybody into away from, uh, away from any kind of recklessness or negligence and pushes them constantly toward accountability. And Beston is an observer, and uh, we don't really know what he's thinking and feeling. Um, and uh, Dodie sort of translates him for us. Beston ends up leaving home when he's quite young. He's only 16 or 17 years old, and he abruptly and quietly leaves home and moves to Boston. And um, he doesn't give his family any warning. The family has been uh, a fractured family for a very long time when this happens. And they have not been able to, to find their own standing again. And uh, he's, he really just has enough. It's 
It's more than this quiet, interior, shy boy knows how to deal with. And he just, he simply removes himself. And he goes, he works for a printer in Boston. In the years before that, he and the family discover that he's actually a very gifted musician. Nobody suspected. And uh, they buy a piano and Beston makes music on that piano and sings. And so in Boston, in that new life, he is... Um, trying to make his way as a very new musician in the city. He does come back and visit periodically. Uh, when the book closes, he is has made the step of returning for visits. That was one of the more beautiful parts that I loved, that, that he did come back. Doris is such a strong character, so competent. She, even, even in the middle of the hurricane of of the emotional the, the everything going on uh, after the tragedy she never stops cooking and canning and doing the laundry but top cannot get her to focus on raising their children what what's going on there why can't she hear him she you know it's almost as if um, the the elemental, obligations for Doris of providing food um, are the, the work of the kitchen. Somehow that elemental instinct stays with her. She, she doesn't lose that. She does not take care of the garden. Uh, she, that falls to very young Dodie. Um, she Doris is unable to do larger work in the house, you know, an annual painting of the kitchen ceiling to freshen it from wood stoves, um, an airing of the all the bedding outside in the springtime. She's not able to do those larger chores, but she does do the cooking. It's a, it's a kind of automatic uh, work for her, and she does that. Um, she burdens. Uh, without intending to, uh, she burdens Dodie terribly because Dodie ends up taking care of all of that work for her mother. And Dodie chastises her mother gently sometimes and angrily sometimes saying, it's too much, I can't do this. But she does. She does do it. And, do you uh, think Tup made the right decision about letting Dodie take over the farm, ch- farm chores after school and on weekends? That's a very interesting question. Um, one of the things that I love about Tup's story is that um, there's a lot to wrestle with in our understanding of this man. He was faced with a terrible choice. This family was in really, really terrible trouble during that time. If he sells the farm, there is a risk that there's no family, that nothing, that nothing will cohere, nothing will hold them together. And um, I think he's very aware that without even the elemental task of cooking for, for Doris and his uh, considerable work um, running the farm, if they don't have that work, he, I think, senses that, um, that, the, their entire world will fall apart and nothing will be left. So I think that that's the basis of that uh, decision. He does, uh, it's a tearful moment when he tries to tell Dodie that it's too much for her and she is struck with the fear in his voice. She hears how frightened her father is 
at the prospect of this work not being manageable. His work without the boy's help, her work uh, without Doris's help. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a very, uh, I think, a very dramatic moment when they both decide that this child is going to step into that role. Yeah. I was a little surprised when uh, in this very small-minded, small town, 1940s, 50s community, that the family didn't receive more, um, a more of a response from the community about what was happening with Tup, that they didn't, that it was very mild, actually. It didn't impose upon them. Can you say more yes. about that? Well, really, we don't see the response. Uh, Dodie reports to us that she knows that there's gossip. She knows that there were rumors. Um, and she has to figure out how to uh, maintain her dignity and get off the school bus every day and be among her peers. Those rumors and that gossip die down over time, and she she stops mentioning it. I think that things ease for her in school. We don't see any um, repercussions from the town except one moment when a truck full of uh, of young men come barreling at night after dark out along their farm road, and they cause some terrible harm. It's a very, uh, very, very disturbing scene. And um, it's a it's a signal of what might be at the heart of that that gossip and those rumors. Um, but we then we ultimately see this community uh, when um, Top and Doris have finally started to make their way back to each other. And it has taken a long time for them to move through their own sorrows and their own guilts and um, return to their role as mother and father and husband and wife, which was a relationship. Those were roles that were, were very deep for them. They were intimate and loving uh, partners and um as they find their way back, they return to uh, the town. Um, Dodie graduates, and um, they are in the town for a couple social events with the church. And they realize that the town has made the very generous step of saying, each of us has faced hardship and none of us have managed exactly the way we think we are going to under those circumstances. Um, people, people, people do the best they can. That would that would be the country response. People do the best they can, and um, and Doris and Top are welcomed back into that community. That very community. I got to say, while I was reading this, I just kind of kept wanting to jump up and can some tomatoes or something. Yes, <laughs> it really put me in the mood. I just well, there was a kind of a rhythm to the kitchen work and the farm work totally outside of my real world. <coughs> Excuse me. I'd like to ask, um, what do you think book groups, this is a great book group selection, what should they be talking about? I think that readers in a book group would have conversations about the central question, are Tup and Doris 
a good mother, a good mother and father. And um, I think that there's, I think those are legitimate questions. They were excellent parents. Are they still? Do they return to being good parents? And um, I think that that's, those are central questions. And I also think that there are questions. Tup, Tup allows himself to not make decisions and slides into some circumstances that are very costly for his family. And I think that there would be a lot of conversation about um, are, are those actions, those, um, those moments of failure and weakness, are they forgivable? So I think readers will circle those questions. But I think most of all, I, I hope that the title of this book, Beneficence, is the guiding light. Uh, for me, these people are essentially very good people, and they their love for each other is a very remarkable um, kind of organism that can that that centers everything. And they, uh, I believe that uh, they find their way back to that goodness and the. The, the light that shines inside beneficence and um, and it it survived they, they managed they they are changed by the events um, in some good ways and there has been cost um, but I, I think for me in the end this is a book about the ways in which um, grace uh, grace lasts grace is there mm-hmm. It was a beautiful novel. What are you working on next? Well, we talked about Beston. I have become very interested. You know, I never imagined writing two books uh, back to back um, that are connected, but Beston really interests me. We know very little about him, and he we leave him in an interesting world in Boston in the uh, mid-60s, and that's a very different world than he knew on the farm. Um, so I've been giving some thought to moving, um, moving into his story and seeing what it can, what it can be. So I've been making notes and trying out some, uh, uh, some voice on this and see where I can go with it. Oh, it sounds lovely. Thank you so much again for joining me, Meredith. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you, Galit. That's been just such a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to join you. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author and memoirist Meredith Hall about her debut novel, Beneficence. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.